What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What is and Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, coming at you, sadly, without my co-host Adam Prommel this time. We had our weekly Sunday mailbag on Locker Room that I recorded. I did it solo because he is sick, as I mentioned at the top, after getting his first dose of the COVID vaccination. He had to cancel last minute. We had a ton of questions, though, so we thank you guys for sending those in. Cover a lot of different ground here. Uh, we're talking about the you know, Eastern Conference specifically in the mailbag. We'll do a, a Western Conference one next week. We also have a different series that we were going to start for you, um, taking a look at every team to kind of just go in depth. We like to give you guys that every once in a while um, that we're going to fire up hopefully next week or, or later this week. Um, a few things, our usual housekeeping notes, but first let's start with these locker room sessions. We are wondering if anyone is listening, and we know there's a ton of you listening, can you let us know on Twitter if you want to DM us? Are there times that you would actually come and join on the locker room discussions? We know that Sundays are sort of tough. Uh, this was Easter, but we've seen the numbers sort of trickle down on the people that are joining us. We want to interact with you guys live, and we're willing to try and build that around your schedule. Is it better to do it during games uh, one night a week? Is there just a day or a time? Is it a Saturday or something that you think well, you know that we can just get mass appeal uh, are you just not interested in doing the live discussions with us? Just bruise my ego that way. That's totally fine. But we are in locker room as of right now, every 4 p.m., uh, every Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Love taking questions and talking to people live. We've had those. Um, a lot of chat questions, too. You don't even need to speak. You can drop the questions in the chat. But come, please, join us. Also, make sure you're subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, whether or not you use it. That helps us out a ton. Throw us a five-star rating. Write a review. Criticize the hell out of me. Just throw us the five-star rating as well. And we do the reviews help, too, in addition to the ratings. Finally, follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Also, follow the Sports Math Network on Twitter at the underscore sports underscore math. And then follow us on YouTube, youtube.com. Search for Hardware Knox. We will pop up. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There is going to be a video element um, probably by the end of the season that we're working with. All our podcasts are still going up on YouTube, though, so check us out there. Let's get into this solo mailbag, though. All right, everyone. Welcome to another mailbag edition of the Hardware Knox podcast. Still waiting for some people to join us in locker room, but as an impromptu pivot, my co-host Adam Frommel is under the weather today after receiving his first dose of the COVID-19 vaccination. Good for him for, for getting it. So we're rolling on solo today, which will be exciting. We've done it before. I got a ton of questions to get to. I will try to get to as many as possible. Uh, without further ado here, though, since you've already listened to, if you're listening to this post-recording, you've already heard the intro, let's just get going here i will start with fred long time question asker and i presume listener then for that matter asks how long can tibbs continue starting alfred payton at point guard with a diminishing win percentage look that's a great question i think knicks fans in general have been frustrated with the loyalty that thibodeau has shown to the alfred payton minutes i don't know how long he will go with it but the experiment should have clearly ended already in my book. I get why they don't want to throw Emmanuel quickly into the starting lineup just yet. That does make a ton of sense when you look at what you want to do with your second unit. We've seen some minutes. I go back to that net game earlier this season where quickly did start, I believe, and he wasn't with the second unit and they got destroyed. I get the logic there and the minutes, by the way, with, with quickly and Derek Rose, it hasn't been a ton because of D Rose's absences and has only been in New York for part of the season, but the Knicks are plus 11.6 per 100 possessions during those minutes. Ironically, the defense has been spectacular during that time while the offense has been, been trash and they've, they've played a lot of those reps with Alec Burks. And so you would expect those units to be mostly better 
Um, the most used one has been semi-confident offensively. They've had Toppin in there with, with Taj Gibson. But I get wanting to tether Derek Rose and quickly together in theory. Still, play Frank Nielakina. Just fucking play him already would be my recommendation. Or, you know, maybe try it with Alec Burks in the starting lineup. Uh, you know, you have, I get that you want to sort of preserve the sanctity of the second unit and some of the success you've had with your bench lineups upgrade the starting unit. And it does give you a lot of options if you want to go with Frank Nielakina, just because you're already kind of playing with a non-shooter in Peyton. If you need to replace some of the ball handling, even though you have Julius Randle, you have RJ Barrett, you could go with um, Alec Burks there. And so that would probably be my recommendation for this team. I, I don't, again, I can't rationalize the loyalty to Alfred Peyton. He just looks bad on the court uh, most of the time, I would say. And if New York wants to make any noise in the playoffs uh, or, you know, just ensure that they stay out of play in territory, I think there just needs to be some shifts going on with those minutes in the rotation. Let's go to a question from Meyer Rothbaum, another regular question asker. He asks or tells me to rank these teams one to three, Knicks, Hornets, and Pacers. I thought about this one uh, for a few minutes before getting started. It's really difficult. Now, maybe it's a little bit easier if we were just going looking at the current state. I'd have the Hornets at three. Just when you don't have LaMelo Ball, you don't have Gordon Hayward at the moment uh, because they suffered injuries. Between the Knicks and the Pacers, I think you can look at the Knicks and say at least they sort of have the specialty, which is defense. And this season, do they have the best player of the two teams? It would be between Randall and Sabonis. That being said, you could argue that the Pacers have three of the four best players in this matchup between Sabonis, Turner, Malcolm Brogdon. I don't know that you're taking RJ Barrett just yet over any one of those guys. The Pacers have not been good, and it seems like they need another initiator from the point of attack still. They haven't had a ton of samples with Karis LeVert sort of running the show, and I really don't want to give anything away because that's going to lead into our next question. Um, let's just ask it at the same time. Uh, Kim asked, should the Indiana Pacers rip it up and start all over again like the Orlando Magic? My gut answer to this question would be no, just because the Magic didn't really have a path. It seemed to getting any better internally when you were looking at their personnel and what they needed most. There was a lot of overlap or just players you're trying to shoehorn into roles that don't really fit them, like an Aaron Gordon. Even with his improved ball skills and just as a facilitator, he's not going to be Paul George. With the Pacers, it's a little bit different because we still haven't seen uh, their what would project to be their best five-man unit together since TJ Warren is injured, where you have Turner, Lavert, Sabonis, Brogdon, and, and then Warren. Uh, and then you've only had, look, at just the four guys that are healthy right now, Lavert, Turner, Sabonis, and Brogdon, you've only seen those guys play 401 possessions together. The minutes have not been encouraging. The offense has been a disaster there. And I do wonder if Indiana is just sort of banking on Karis Lavert to do too much on ball work where we saw him. Yeah. If you want to play him against second units, he might be fine as sort of a quasi point guard, but you know, in a, in a spot game when there were injuries and he was just sort of your go-to score running everything, but he does feel like he needs sort of a more traditional first option on the team to play off. And that's not necessarily Malcolm Brock. And it's not even a bonus, even though he sort of can function as that first option. They feel like they're missing there's, – there's something inherently wrong with the construction of the roster, I guess. And I don't know how they go about getting that player because they are strapped financially this year. They're probably going to lose, I would imagine, one of Doug McDermott or TJ McConnell just basing this off of their, their tax situation, and they have a history of not paying the tax. There are probably questions about the coaching staff at this point, or at least the decisions under head coach Nate Bjorken. He does seem a little hesitant to close games with two bigs. Uh, the Miles Turner minutes without Sabonis have sort of been fine, but the minutes when Sabonis plays without Turner have been a little bit wonky. I don't necessarily know what the solution is for them, but I still think it's worth looking at the talent on this team and saying, well, okay, well, how could they look with TJ Warren? Where now you sort of have just another guy who's going to, he should space the floor for you, but just another, another person who can generate offense for you. So maybe you don't need a, let's say a pure floor general. I want to stay away from pure point guard because you have just, guys who can do a bunch of different things in Malcolm Brogdon, Warren, and then Levert, plus all the facilitation that you're going to get from Zabonis. And so there's a chance that this exact Pacers unit has a higher ceiling than we're seeing now. That being said, they could sort of have that come to Jesus moment where 
you know, it, it was even sort of a problem with Victor Oladipo. They just, they need a different kind of primary initiator than they have. I don't know how they go about getting one. Uh, you can use maybe Turner or Brogdon as, as trade bait in that scenario, but I don't know what package you're building, what player you're, you're going to go after. Uh, maybe Gordon Hayward would have just helped them a ton had they completed that Turner sign and trade this year, because then if they'd still made the move for Levert, I don't know if they would have found that necessary, but those two guys together feel like they make a ton of sense. Uh, so I, I wouldn't blow it up would be moral of the story for the Indiana Pacers here. I would look to see if you can get a different kind of creator with them in the backcourt, or even just float it at this point and say, Hey, let's see what we look like when TJ Warren comes back. They do have interesting contract decisions coming up with Warren who's slated to be a free agent in 2022. Uh, you know, they're not that far away from Karis LeVert's free agency, which is going to be in 2023, I believe. So they have a lot of, interesting decisions to make on their hand, but I do think it's worth floating the current core a little bit more unless that right move comes along. And then to answer Myers question in full right now, I'd probably go Knicks Pacers Hornets looking at the current state of the teams. If they're at full strength, I might be inclined to go Pacers Knicks Hornets still feeling like the Hornets just missed, you know, could they upgrade the center position? Um, Could they get a little deeper on the wings because they do have a lot of guards who can score Maybe I'm undervaluing a full-strength Lamelo ball. Uh, I do think at full health, I might still be tempted to take the Pacers if you gave them more more time together. It feels like that team, as currently constructed, again, has the highest immediate ceiling. I'm not talking about with, you know, sophomore Lamelo ball or Lamelo ball in his third season. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Jeff Nicholas, let's get to his. He asked three questions. Uh, Let's see if we can get to all of them here. Jeff asked, first one, assuming they don't move up in the lottery, what what does Toronto have a path back to contention with the current core? How much of their struggles is just this season being broken? I would say a lot of it has to do with this season being broken for the Raptors. Um, They have had under 20 games this season in which Siakam, Lowry, Van Fleet, and Ananobi have played together. So that's way less than half the season right now. Uh, They are winning the minutes by 6.6 points per 100 possessions when those four are on the court. And COVID seems to have hit them. Heavier, at least in that condensed dose we saw kind of leading into the all-star break in a lot of teams, they've been dealing with more injuries. The other thing I do not think that we can discount even a little bit here is they are not playing in Toronto. They're in Tampa. Every game is a road game. And I do really think that impacts players. They're dealing with this truncated schedule. Now you're away from home and they're not in the bubble per se, but it's a different type of sequestering for them. Just be, just because, uh, uh, they're not in their familiar environment. And I think that means a, a great deal. And uh, I, I think if you put them in Toronto, they probably have a lot more success, even with the health issues that they've sort of dealt with. And look, some of the things might turn for them. They have a positive net rating this season, despite being so far under 500 at the moment. They're seven and 20 in games that enter crunch time. And that could be a really you know, th- that can't be, that is a huge issue. And if it turns, it shows that they've been in a ton of close games, even though they're sort of in the back half of the league and crunch time and it's played, they've at least been within somewhat striking distance towards the end of fourth quarters. I would expect that they're, they're going to see their performance improve if they ever get to full strength. And how do you improve this roster from there? Because if you want to keep Kyle Lowry, you're not going to have cap space this summer after giving Ananobi his extension, which I don't, you have to sign him to that deal four years and 72 at the time, he would have cost a a lot more. I was shocked. They got him for that little, can they add a big man? Uh, Can they add, you know, it does kind of seem like maybe another taller shot creator. Uh, They had that in Norman Powell, but he wasn't really bigger. He's six, three. Um, They have Gary Trent jr. Replace him. who's a little bit taller at six, five. How much is he going to cost too? If you want to pay him this summer has a insanely small cap hold though. Uh, but I, I think looking at a center and then maybe just a different type of, of wing player to go with Ananobi, who's guarded a lot of fives this year. Anyway, those seem like they might be the two biggest needs for them. 
and and really that bigger player who might put consistent pressure on the rim. I don't know if you're going to get that in crunch time in the half court on a relentless continuous basis from a, a Pascal Siakam. Um, And then, you know, Lowry, probably they're, I guess, the most trustworthy guy with Norman Powell gone to count on him getting to the basket. Fred Van Fleet, his game kind of stalls out a little bit before the rim. So I would say this team from making real noise in the Eastern Conference feels like they might be 1.5 players short at the moment. I still think they're better than their their record shows substantially too, which is why I'm kind of hoping they keep Kyle Lowry just to see what this team looks like. If they're given better health, if they get to play in Toronto next season, I still, I'm a big believer in, in Chris Boucher. I like Gary Trent Jr. A lot, his long-term fit on the roster. Uh, It'd be fantastic if they could get in the Rashawn Holmes sweepstakes over free agency. He would be a really good fit for them. That might prove out of their price range though, because their, their cap number is going to be all over the place depending on, how much Kyle Lowry costs you. His cap hold alone is just going to obliterate your cap space. But maybe he ends up signing for cheaper. I don't know that he takes that much of a pay cut if it's a two-year deal. He could also leave. Without him, then it does get a little trickier because I do think that you're going to still want everything I just mentioned. And then someone else like that really helps. Is that Malachi Flynn? Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, so I think that, that if, if he leaves, that's going to sort of change the calculus of how they approach the offseason. They could technically also try and get involved in a trade sweepstakes if a Bradley Beal becomes available. Don't know how much of a risk they're going to take. Again, when you have a player like that, one he would be one year out from free agency next season. They do have uh, they do have Siakam that they could dangle in that deal, but picks and then even you know may, are the Wizards interested in Van Fleet? And you view him as a little bit more expendable because you have if Kyle Lowry comes back, is that something that you could look at? You have Ananobi, excuse me, too in that situation. If you end up tearing it down, that's where it gets interesting because I don't, this team can't be bad as currently constructed. It's, you know, okay, trade Pascal Siakam, but then you, and let Kyle Lowry walk, but then you still have OG Ananobi and Fred Van Fleet. This team just isn't going to be bad. So I think they're closer than people realize at the moment, but kind of taking that next step is going to be tricky from them unless we really see just like a completely different level from, from Pascal Siakam. Maybe he has another jump left in him uh, or they're able to really you know, futz and fiddle with their books and, and make a couple, you know, not star just because those players aren't available in free agency, but really high, high impact additions in free agency. Jeff also asked, does Nemanja Bielitsa's spacing make him a viable backup five for Miami? I would say maybe the, the problem here is you're not going to count on him to be sort of this backline rim protector he's allowing opponents to shoot 67.7 percent at the basket so far this year Uh, that's not great and the minutes the scant minutes he he logged in sacramento as the de facto five did not go well for them defensively that being said they worked defensively in in minor doses during his first two seasons with the king so maybe there's something there i also think to he does have a little bit of an FU to his game where he's a little bit more physical when he's putting the ball on the floor than, than people really talk about or credit him with. That might make him just a little bit more of a mismatch at the five, so you might as well test it out. But I don't know how many minutes you can realistically get to there. Uh, and, and it also, a lot of it probably depends on who's playing the four in those minutes. So we know Bam won't be on the floor and he would be considered the five in that scenario anyway. Is this a situation where you're kind of leaning into defense all around him? If you have a Butler, Iguodala are all on the are both of them are on the court for those minutes, and then maybe you have you know is Victor Oladipo on the floor during those minutes, and you just go with Duncan Robinson. So you have three above average defenders. Um, if Oladipo is healthy, and then Robinson and Bialita, that could be an interesting five man combination for them to to test out. I assume they're going to have to go to it moving forward. I don't want to say quite heavily, but fairly substantially because their their front line is sort of all over the place. We've seen Iggy log back up four minutes this year, even though he'll probably be listed as a wing. They have Precious Achua. Maybe they just have a lot of faith in him. Uh, but, you know, Olenek was, he was playing next to Bam and then also logging some back up five minutes as well. And so it'll be on Bielita, I would think, to assume part of that role. I do not know how well it's it's going to work. I do think that he have the personnel around him to make it more of an effective arrangement with the elites at the five than, than the Kings did. The final question from Jeff, uh, we're sticking with the the heat. Jimmy Butler is a top blank player this season. That's a tough one. I I'll say top 12. A lot of people are going to point to his efficiency on jumpers, which are, are not great. And he just doesn't take as many threes anymore. 
he's going to be an all defensive player. There's a chance that maybe he could sneak in on the top three defensive player of the year ballot. I'm not sure where people are going to list him there. He should certainly be in the top five of consideration there. I think he is just ceaseless on, on that end of the floor. And he can really shape the heat's defense on his own, which is hard when you're, it's harder when you're a wing player uh, to, to have, to have that type of an impact on a team's identity. Um, that's why, you know, bigs are so wanting to to win defensive player of the year. You have to credit that. His facilitation is just through the roof, over seven assists per game this season. Been absolutely spectacular for them as, as a playmaker. Um, and he can still, he really puts pressure on the basket. You trust him in crunch time. He can get to the, to the free throw line. This is someone that you can build a contender around as the, the best player. And so I'd still, yeah, maybe some people have him as low as 15, but I think he's firmly in top 12. Others might make an argument that he's clearly been top 10 the 10 to 12 range seems right though to me for him this year let's move on to another question this one comes from face of the painter i think i'm I'm reading that correctly what are the top eastern teams in terms of wide open three-point percentage so let's take a look at this two different ways if we're looking at raw wide open three um, point percentage and that's with defender six or more feet away here are the top five teams the Clippers, the Blazers, the Jazz, the Nets, and the Celtics. If you're looking at the teams that create wide open three-pointers most often, so the percentage of their three-point attempts that come wide open, the top five in that are the Jazz, the Thunder, the Raptors, the Rockets, and the Pacers. Some of that, the Jazz being in the top five of both makes complete sense. That's just been uh, you know, their, their MO for forever uh, under Quinn Schneider, it seems. Teams like the Thunder and the Pacers, this seems like it's be, and even the Rockets, it speaks more towards the talent on those teams where their uh, defenses aren't going to be as afraid of leaving them wide open from three. Uh, definitely when you're looking at the, the Thunder and the Rockets, might even feel that way about the Raptors. That might be a, a vote as to you know why the Raptors might not rebound because they are hitting 40% of their, their wide open threes. But looking at the, the raw percentages, the Clippers lead the NBA 44.4% on wide open threes. And, you know, they might be shooting that on contested threes. They've been lights out all year. The Portland Trailblazers are second at 43.7%. The Utah Jazz are third at 43.5%. The Nets are fourth at 43%. And the Celtics are fifth at 41.7%. If anyone's curious as to what the worst teams in the league are, the Rockets are 30th in wide open three-point percentage, 359 The Wizards are 361 28th is the Grizzlies at 36.7. That's been, you know, they're the team where you look at, and it's like if they had another shooter were hitting more of their three-pointers, they would be ridiculous. The Spurs are 27th at 36.9%, and then the Mavericks are just behind them. Some of their shooting numbers have normalized since their cold start of the beginning of the season, but that is, you know, this is going to be something to watch. Next question, we have one from Anthony Morlacci. Which, or excuse me, what a big man should the Hornets pick up to try to spark some energy after two big injuries the past month, referring to Gordon Hayward and LaMelo Ball here. Hayward's going to be out at least a month, it looks like, and then LaMelo Ball with his fractured wrist. They haven't, the Hornets haven't ruled him out returning this year, but it was initially expected that he was going to be out for the season. A mid-season pickup right now is going to be difficult. We've already seen, you know, Gorgie Jang signed with Brooklyn. Dwayne Dedman is still floating around out there if anyone's interested. Uh, there's DeMarcus Cousins as well. Names that they could watch to be potentially bought out. Son Whiteside's injured in Sacramento, and they kind of need the help at the five sneakily when you look at, you know, they just traded away Bielita, Marvin Bagley's injured. So they might not even want to buy him out. Will the Rockets buy out Kelly Olenek? They're, they, he's been starting because Christian Wood's right ankle is acting up again for them. Marc Gasol seems really unhappy in in L.A. after the Lakers added – Andre Drummond. I don't know if one, if they did buy him out, I don't know that he's going to go to the Hornets. He'd probably want to land on more of a contender, maybe Boston there. He sort of seems like the archetype of center that, uh, you know, definitely someone who could replace some of the stuff that Daniel Tice does on defense and offense. He's clearly a better passer, higher IQ. Tice could move a little little bit or a lot better in space. So I don't don't know how high up the, the Hornets would be on his list. You go to free agency this summer and looking at the, you know, trying to make this long term since it is important that I think the Hornets take that view, just given the makeup of their roster still. A lot of their most important players are relatively young, even though they do have Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, et cetera, et cetera. 
I'm assuming they'll bring Cody Zeller back. I don't know how much he'll cost, and he can be really good, but he's just not someone who's going to put consistent pressure on the ring, give you a ton on offense, and he's you know has one of the most checkered health bills among big men. It seems like you can pencil him out for 20-plus absences every single year. Rashawn Holmes is going to be a name. The, the Hornets should have no problem getting to you know 20-plus million in cap space if they're willing to renounce all of their own guys. Uh, or the, and they can carry Devontae Graham's hold pretty pretty easily. He won't be too huge, his restricted free agent hold, that is. So Rashawn Holmes will be in their price range. Pretty much any big will be in be in their price range. Uh, just imagine him running the floor with Lamella Ball on the court, even working with Gordon Hayward. Um, I wonder if Charlotte, just because of the way that they play their centers, would be open letting Rashawn Holmes shoot threes. We haven't really seen that since I think he was in Phoenix or maybe it was in Philly for a minute. I, I'm a big advocate of that, though. But he, he hits the offensive glass pretty hard. He's going to run the floor. Great pick-and-roll partner. And he's not going to make your defense, but his mobility extends outside of the restricted area, and he's a you know, he's a solid rim protector. They could also look at you know, it's Serge Ibaka going to decline his player option. Daniel Tice is going to be a free agent. He could be kind of interesting, if depending on his price point. Nerlens Noel will be out there. He's been one of the more underrated contributors in the league this year. Uh, it looks like he's trying to catch and handle a marble on offense with the amount of times that he's committing turnovers or just not, you know, stone hands. You could also put it that way, but he does a lot on defense. He can fly all over the place, cover both sides of the, the pick and roll. Um, good rim protector there. None of these players, when you look at the free agents profile is these indefinite big picture solutions. Um, could they get in on the Jared Allen sweepstakes? What would it take to get him out of Cleveland? You have to imagine that the Cavs traded for him with the intention of paying at least $18 million a year for him. Otherwise, I don't necessarily know why you, you would give up a first-round pick and take on Prince's deal. Low cost, obviously, there. But you trade for him knowing that he's going to cost money. Do they try out Zach Collins, who hasn't really been healthy the past two seasons and also just hasn't played a ton of five in Portland? But in theory a guy who can switch, protect the rim, and space the floor. We still haven't seen enough of his three-point sample. He'll be a restricted free agent. I don't know how much Portland's going to pay him, though, when they just don't have the sample size, especially when they have Nurkic there. He'll be in, going into the last year of his deal and is very affordable. But those two have played, last time I checked, those two have played sub-300 possessions together ever. And just, you know, injuries, the way it worked out with Nurkic and, and now Collins. And Nurkic was injured for a good point of, of this season, too. I don't really look at the free agency class, though. Do they go after Mitchell Robinson if the Knicks make him a restricted free agent? That would be interesting. So there are definitely options there. Uh, this season, though, look at, you know, do you want to try Boogie out? Because it does seem like they are bent on, on making the playoffs. But he's, you know, do I think Boogie belongs in the NBA? Probably, but he's just not a plug-and-play guy, like the idea of a Gorgie Jang. Um, and that's sort of the issue with Andre Drummond is, yeah, he's pretty good, but if you have to give him a certain amount of post-ups or – you know, let him dribble the ball and, and deal with sort of his, you know, waxing and, you know, it, you know, his peaking and, and valuing defensive engagement. Uh, that can be a little bit of a headache. The other thing that they could do, and I don't think this is going to be addressed this season, you know, maybe Otto Porter becomes available and you just want to keep playing small and you view him as a four. And so that's just going to bump up more of the minutes that you can use with PJ Washington at the five, or you just, you know, you play Otto Porter, PJ Washington, Miles Bridges together, and you just mix and match the the defensive combinations there. And you can you can maintain that sort of thought process in free agency where, hey, do we look at guys who are really fours? Uh, by the way, Kelly Olenek will be a, a free agent this summer as well. If that's someone that interests you, I'd probably want someone with more of a defensive punch than him. I thought P.J. Tucker would have been a sneaky good trade target for them at the beginning of the year. Um, can you try out your Michael Green on the smaller end? He's a player option for this summer. I wouldn't be a fan of Bielita here. Seems like he'd be overstretched. Lowry Markinen, no. James Johnson, if he's just cheap, just to play him more at the five and someone who could theoretically handle the ball. I really like Kem Birch. Uh, he's listed under free agent power forwards, but I, he's more of a, a center. He spent minutes with Vooch in Orlando. He can take the occasional three. Don't know if he gives you a ton rebounding when he is going to be the only big on the court, but he could really move on defense. He's going to pancake dudes on screens. That's a name that they could look at. John Collins' name will certainly be floated, and he's improved so much defensively that – I don't. I doubt they would have any problem paying him in restricted free agency. I don't know that the Hawks are going to let him get away. They would have moved him, uh, in my opinion, if they weren't going to keep him. One of my siren songs, Jared Vanderbilt, plays a lot of four. I would like to see him just at, at the five. A lot of chaotic energy with him. And then finally for the Hornets, can we unleash Vernon Carey Jr.? He's torn it up in G League minutes a lot this year. 
and he's not injured to the best of my knowledge. I think he actually logged just like under a minute and a half or under two minutes in their, in their last game, just try it out. You don't really have, yeah, I know you're trying to get in the playoffs, but that can't be, you know, you have to just play with the hand you've been dealt with. If you're not going to add this midseason big, it's not that important to get Bismarck beyond bow minutes still in, in my estimation. And you do have some cushion, you know, you're, you're fourth in the East as I record this and you want to, if you want to avoid the play-in, you, you only have a game cushion, but if you're just trying to be in the top 10, which I think when you're missing a mellow ball, Gordon Hayward, like you have to be satisfied with that. You have, you're, you have a five game cushion there. So you're not necessarily in danger of that. Try some wonky things then at the five, no other immediate names spring to mind. And I did just go through a ton of free agents. I'm assuming that's where they will spend their money. Uh, most of it or a good amount of it in free agency this summer. Chris Ballard asks, what are the mathematical odds due to strength of schedule and probability that the Pistons end up with the number one overall draft pick? So there's, this is, wouldn't be a good way to do it. And I'm not dumping on the question because of the flattened lottery odds. The Pistons have the third worst record in the NBA right now. Um, to end the season, they have uh, one of the 12 easiest schedules technically, but they don't play themselves. And so that's going to be inflated a little bit. I think you look at this as, they are clearly going to be a bottom three team. They've designed themselves that way. And they have, you know, there are three games in front of them, the 28th worst team in the league by record and the Cavs who have the 27th worst record. That would then mean that they're going to have a 14% chance at getting the, the number one pick. And they'll have a 52.1% chance at getting a top four pick with the way those odds are flattened. Uh, the, the thing to really watch though is, can they drop out? Because that's really, you have a basically a coin toss chance of getting a bottom, uh, excuse me, a top four pick. If you're one of the three worst teams in the league, uh, that's, you know, that's great. But if you're going to be one of the three worst teams in the league, you definitely want a top three pick. Uh, to me though, looking at their schedule, it doesn't seem particularly easy. Um, it's, you know, it's just mid end. My guess would be that they end up with one of the three worst records and they, they get a 14% chance of having that number one overall pick in the lottery and drafting Cade Cunningham, who everyone is so enamored with. I need to watch more of too, as we get closer to the draft. Uh, let's go to Carson asked, why can't the East ever seem to competitively balance with the West? Is it an ownership thing? I think, well, I think, yes, it's, it can be, uh, uh, you know, the people who are running the team thing. Um, I do think that location has a lot to do with it, where if you're going to the Western Conference, there will be free agents, you know, Golden State, just being in a good market, a good warm weather climate, uh, free agents, if they have money, are more likely to flock there. Uh, I, I, I guess it falls apart because, yes, you have the Lakers teams, but then no one's flocking to Sacramento. We have seen veterans go there, though, when they're willing to give up money i think that just contributes to it uh the other thing is right now when you sort of look at the top five players in the league there's just a chance that are are three of them on the west coast steph lebron and then Jokic in the western conference so teams are just going to be naturally one more driven to obtain great talent and to like that's going to be more appealing for free agents to go to and look another by the way place that underrated place and it's not like they sign big free agents all the time but the phoenix suns they're you know they were they lamarcus aldrich had their attention at one point so so did blake griffin and so uh there are players that want to be there and then luka Doncic, i just left him off i'm talking about the top five so even if we go as far as the top 10 players like look at the teams uh you have Lil, or the players you have willard you have Jokic. You have Luka Doncic, you have LeBron and AD on the same team when they're, when they're healthy. You have Steph. It does feel like those teams have stars, the Clippers with Kawhi and then even PG. I wouldn't call him top 10 this season, but just as an example, those are guys that, one, force their teams by themselves to be hyper-competitive when it comes to acquiring talent. And so you would expect their teams to be better. That being said, this is not a competitive imbalance that has existed only this season. There was a time in 2019 where it looked like maybe the East had caught up. James Harden's now in the East. And when you do kind of look at top end talent, a lot of them have congregated on the nets, but having James Harden in the East now having, if once Kevin Durant is healthy, Giannis is still in the East uh, there. It feels like it, it feels like the East can compete looking at raw star power for the most part, I think even when you look at the the all-star pools, it does feel like the Heat still kind of, tr- uh, the East, excuse me, trails in 
top end talent where it's like you if you have some bonuses but you don't have as many you know like i just named but where it's like the dame where it's not he's not a top five guy but he's probably closer he's way closer to the top 10 than he is to the top 30 or top 25 when you look at someone like sabonis um so there's that and I, i'll stand by the market thing but I, as carson mentioned himself a lot of it has to do with how these teams are run and you look at teams and yes it's inherently harder on small markets i, I want to make that clear and i already said that the east does have plenty of top end talent well it'll be benson it's kevin Durant, james Harden, Giannis, lamello ball is going to be up there at one point you have jimmy butler bam at a bio already trey young so there is again there is that there is that star power i just you know julius randall um sabonis they don't they're not on that same level as what it feels like the east but then you can counter with guys in the west excuse me then you can counter with well, Boston has Tatum and Brown. So it does feel like the, the talent depth is there, but the teams, the quality of teams, um, the Knicks are part of this problem. They're in a flagship market and they've been terribly run up until this season. And there's still going to be questions about their front office, the piece from the New York Post about how it's run. And then even now where it seems like they've leaned really heavily into the now over development. And that's, this is a feel good story this season. They have to build off of it because playing 500 basketball, you don't get a medal for that especially in the eastern conference where a team like the hornets is in fourth by being two games over 500 but the hornets even until this like they bask in mediocrity basically they have you know the gordon hayward signing was lampooned but it's worked out with lamella ball they haven't necessarily operated as a normal rebuilding team since they've gotten kemba walker and you can't i don't want to be the heartless callous person that says well just just tank for two or three seasons accumulate as many top draft picks as possible and go from there but we've seen teams in small markets be more methodical about it, like Oklahoma City. Maybe Sam Presti's built up more goodwill with both um, the team governors and then also the fan base because the founder were so good for so many years, uh, even after, you know, Kevin Durant left. They were they were still relevant. I mean, after Russell Westbrook left, they made the playoff push with, with Chris Paul. So, you know, the Hornets, the Knicks, the Bulls especially have been one of the worst-run organizations as well. The Wizards, too. Yes, you have top-end talent now in Bradley Beal. Russell Westbrook's playing really well. You're still on the season, 14 games under 500, and you've been stuck in like this this middle middle class, sub middle class for for too many seasons. The Cavs, when they don't have LeBron, I'm very intrigued by their young core. I, as anyone knows, when we did the redraft, I like Isaac Okoro still a lot. Colin Sexton, both Adam and I are, are big fans of Darius Garland. Uh, they have like an interesting youthful base, and they'll have another good pick this year. Even the Pistons, where it seems like I don't know would you say they're one of the worst run organizations over the past, however many years, maybe when you're looking at the the Josh Smith deal, then going all in for Blake Griffin, even maxing out Drummond when it was iffy in the moment, whether he was a franchise cornerstone type. I, I think it does have a lot to do with the teams where you don't point at teams in the West and it doesn't feel like they have the same volume of it. Yes. The, the Suns until semi semi recently, the Kings, of course, the Warriors before Steph became Steph were probably in there and they might be in there now. You could throw the Rockets in there right now. They're the Timberwolves. So there are, there are teams in each conference, but it does feel like the East has more of those, at least organizations that are more content to wallow in the middle class or ones who have failed to even get there on a more prolonged basis, where in the West, it does feel like it's there's less staying power at the bottom and it's more of a cycle. We'll see if that changes now because – it does feel like the Timberwolves are always in that discussion as well as the Kings. Maybe the Rockets are there now. Um, the Warriors do seem to be taking step backs, but you look at the Kings, the Warriors don't, don't feel like teams that are going to be there forever. The Kings are in play in territory, even though they're probably, they might be the hardest team to figure out this year. That's a totally unrelated topic. This was a great question, Carson, and it's probably worth a, a podcast unto itself. Next question. Jim asks, who are some of the more underrated two-way players? So I have to confess when I was looking at this, before I fired up the, the podcast machine, I wasn't sure if you were talking, if Jim was talking about players on two-way contracts or players who are considered just two-way players, valuable at both ends of the floor. So I have a list of both. Uh, I'll spend, I'll throw a few names out here for, for the, uh, the two-way guys, but, uh, you know, uh, Utah Wantanabe comes to mind. Um, someone who just defends seems like a bigger than he actually is, but he's really more wing sized than not. You have Garrison Matthews in Washington. That that dude can really shoot it, and he moves fast with the ball in his hands. I'm convinced there's more than just a shooting specialist in there from him. I'm very intrigued by Nathan Knight in Atlanta. You know, gets sporadic minutes, but a five who has shown that he can um, 
get some provide you some rim protection at points, but then also space the floor. That's always going to intrigue me. Uh, the biggest one for me would be Juan Toscano Anderson. I don't think he receives enough credit for what he's done in Golden State this year. Might be one of the most underrated players in the league, uh, probably in part because of his sub 700 minute sample. I don't know if that's because the Warriors weren't sure if the league was going to change the the two way player rules at this point, but he should be playing more. Um, he's he's shooting a, a good enough clip on his threes. It's shown that he can keep the ball moving. There are still questions. What would he do? in a higher volume offensive role because getting him to to shoot more, it seems like it's been pulling teeth, but he is so high energy mixed with absurd range on the defensive end right now in the Warriors, a locked in Draymond green is the only defender who's more versatile for them. Uh, this is per basketball indexes matchup data, but Juan Toscano Anderson has spent uh, at least 15% of his time on the court guarding every single position. Uh, that's wild. Uh, he's guarded more fours than any other spot, but to have that versatility um, among the 300 of players who have logged at least 500 minutes this season, uh, there are only a handful that have a better positional versatility rating. And that again comes from basketball index. If you're looking for two way players that I think are underrated and, you know, uh, players who play both ends of the floor, I think someone to look at this season and which is kind of funny, Reggie Bullock. I, I think he's someone who really has given uh, an incredibly underrated two-way punch this year. His his three-point volume has ticked up uh, where they've really given him the green light. He's been at basically over seven attempts per game for the past you know month or so. And he gives you that floor spacing on a team that desperately needs it. Not going to do anything with the ball in his hands, but that's just, that's immaterial to me when you look at everyone else who's already on the Knicks from Julius Randle to Emmanuel Quickly. Of course, you you also have uh, R.J. Barrett there as well. What he's done defensively for them, I mean, he's taking on – he's not a point guard, which so this is going to be skewed. He's not guarding number one options the most, but he's guarding number two options more than anyone else on the Knicks right now. And he spent a good amount of time on number one options as well. So you just look at the, the breadth of uh, defensive assignments, the difficulty of them that he's – had to saddle himself with in New York and he's been an unmitigating success. He's going to be a free agent this year and is making basically no money at the moment. Remember they tried to, well, they, didn't, they could have signed him to more, but they initially signed him to more. And then he had the, I think it was, it was a neck injury or a back injury. I can't remember which one. And they, they restructured the deal to where he right now is making 4.2 million. He's going to cost substantially more than that. I would argue another player who sort of comes to mind would be uh, uh, as I started, Kyle Anderson of the Grizzlies this season. Um, he's done a really good job. He's honed his wide open three-point touch where he's shooting about league average from there, um, hitting more than 50% of his mid-rangers, uh, over 47% of his floaters. He plays with a cadence that is all his own. And it, it does look like his game unfurls in slow motion, but he doesn't give defenders much time to think he's, he's pump faking and barreling disarms with misdirections and his passing. He's a really good passer. Um, he can do things with either hand, uh, you know, pass the ball with, with either hand, dribble it with either hand. I've, I've written this before his, his, his on ball body mechanics don't make any sense to me. He looks like he's sort of jerking or flailing while he's dribbling in eight different directions. Uh, like one of those inflatable tube men that are billowing in the wind outside a sketchy car dealership. Um, the quirkiness works though. And he can still draw shooting fouls more often, I would say than people who don't put immense pressure on the rim should. And then he has just a, uh, he has just a wide range on defense as well. He can guard some wings guards. You can put them on some bigger players and he's just going to subtly pile on the, the box score. And, you know, looking at, the past going back since 2012, 2013, there are only four other players who have maintained his current Kyle Anderson's current true shooting defensive rebound assist steal and block percentages for an entire season. Giannis, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, and Nikola Jokic. That's a hell of a club to, to be a part of. And I'm not sure if he's still considered underrated, but it might be time to start talking about Dario Sarge as more of a two-way impact. The Suns are getting away by using him in minutes at the five important minutes. Mind you, he's closed some games there when, Aiton is roller coasting all, all over the place. Uh, he's we know what he can do on the ball. They, the Suns haven't even gotten his best shooting yet, uh, but he can. Yeah, they're, they're sort of an. I mentioned this before. Um, can't remember who I was talking about, but there's an 
uh, FU to his game too. That was Bielita. There's an FU to Sarich's game too. Like he can really, not the most efficient post scorer, but he can put it to bigger dudes. So he does a lot on offense, has those ball skills, can, can space the floor, even though his three-point clip isn't falling at an especially high rate. But defensively, however, he's done, he's done a lot for the Suns where it feels like he's, when you watch him versus Aiton, there's more lateral mobility there, or at least decisiveness. And I know the, the folks on the Timeline podcast, another Blue Wire pod, have talked about how he always seems to be in the right spot. It is not. Um, a, like it is, if it, it is part of that, but it also just seems like he's moving better than Aiton, and it's going to make more decisions, and he's going to get back to the rim a lot more, and he can come higher out without getting burned. Where Aiton's been lauded for switchability, but it seems like if you pull him out far enough, he's going to be at a disadvantage. And I'm not saying that Sarge is just a great rim protector right now because he's not, but he's giving them more optionality at the five, and so that's a big deal. I don't know if he would still count as underrated, but that is a name to consider. Anyone who's interested in a little bit of breaking news here, it looks like the Clippers are signing four-time all-star to Marcus Cousins to a, a 10-day 10 10-day 10 contract. Um, we'll see how that works out there, but that takes him off the board for the Hornets, the team that I was just talking about before. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Let's see if we can get to a, a couple more questions, though. Uh, Miroslav Shook asks, is Embiid ever going to get some foul calls? Embiid leads the league. Um in free throw attempts per 36 minutes. So I'm not sure what the impetus behind this question is. If I missed something on his return in Saturday, I did not see that game is that he's fouling too much, but here's what, here's what I'll say with bigs. And we've seen it with LeBron too, is that because they're built the way they are, it, it looks like they're almost not getting fouled or maybe that's how it looks to refs or, or refs don't deem contact as impactful enough to think that it's a foul on them. And that's not, you know, that's not their fault, but that's just my, that's my conspiracy theory here is that people think big bodies aren't as affected by a normal amount of contact. And I would argue that it's, it's with LeBron at times. I'm not saying, I'm not saying with absolute definity that I think Joel Embiid or LeBron is unfairly officiated. That's just something where it feels like James Harden is able to sell contact more than a guy like Joel Embiid or LeBron James. Uh, so, so that's all I have for you, uh, Miroslav. Sorry. Um, Noah Odage also someone who hosts a fantastic podcast himself stick to sports check that out realistically is there a successful Knicks team in the future that features either Frank Nielakina Kevin Knox or Obi Toppin as cornerstones what are what's the ceiling on those three I feel like he's trying to pull up my heartstrings here by asking about Frank Nielakina as cornerstones I don't know. I think Toppin is going to have the chance to come closest because he's still so much of a mystery box. I think the Knicks are going to need to put the ball in his hands a little bit more, and he's going to need to just move better, period, on the defensive end. that was It was always going to be his weakness coming in, but this, there have been minutes where he's on the court where it looks untenable. So I think he has the best chance of being on a good Knicks team as a cornerstone. I think of the three, Frank Nielakina can actually be the most helpful to a really good team long-term. Looking at what he's able to do defensively, um, ones, twos, and threes. He can legitimately match up with those guys. We've seen him compete against James Harden in the past. We've seen him compete against tough wing scores in the past. I get that he needs to figure out his offense to demand or to have a, just a, a role carved out, a consistent role. Um, he shot the three ball better by and large this year, but it's just in such smaller volume. And there's a smoothness to his game when the ball is in his hands. I maintain this when you watch him and he's working off the dribble. The decision making just isn't there. It's not the same. Uh, it's just, it's not consistent. And he'll he'll take these bizarro shots or he'll turn the ball over. He needs to be more decisive in what he's doing there. Are you going to pull up for a floater? You're trying to get to the rim? Are you dumping the ball off? It works against him. I don't think he has the vision necessary to be an actual point guard. I also think actual consistent reps would would go a long way. I think you have to go with Toppin as a second most likely after him. And some people put him first again just because of the relative unknownness to what he could do still. Kevin Knox still intrigues me. Just it's not because of what he did in summer league that one time where that might've been not might've, it was overblown. The efficiency was not great. He has more to offer offensively on the ball, but he's, you know, as someone you want to use as a guy in the corners, I think he has value there on offense. Can he improve his cutting a little bit Be on a team that's going to utilize him more in those situations? And then what are you going to get from him defensively? Because he can be pushed over, but he's shown that he like there, there is matchup range there when you look at his, his body type, so these are all players who still intrigue me. Um, everyone knows on this podcast, I'm most intrigued by Frank Nielakina. Um, but Obi Toppin is, is if we're looking at this discussion, this, this, this discussion, excuse me, is the swing piece. 
if you're looking at natural cornerstone, OG, uh, OG, RJ Barrett is certainly in that conversation. Um, the Knicks have to hope that he is a cornerstone. Do they have a second one on the team? And maybe it's Julius Randle. I just don't know, you know, his contract's up after next year. How much does he cost to keep? Is there, is this lightning in a bottle to any extent, just because it is one season and I'm not, I, he's been, he's been great this year. I think he's going to surprise people with the number of all NBA votes he gets and arguably deserves his defense feels like it's ticked off as late of late, but it's been better this season. I just don't think you look at the Knicks and say, Hey, RJ Barrett and Julius Randall can be your two best players on a championship team. You either need that third guy who is actually a cornerstone, not just a nice complimentary player, like a Reggie Bullock or an Alec Burks, or is it, is it Emmanuel quickly? Um, I don't know that anyone aside looking at their young players from RJ Barrett is legitimate building block as that, that franchise building block material, maybe Mitchell Robinson is still there, but I think we've, sort of seen enough to know that it would be awful tough. To, it's tough to do that in general, build a team around a big who doesn't create his own offense or set up for anybody else. But he's not Rudy Gobert either. Like he's not trans, transcendent on the defensive end, at least yet. Maybe the Knicks are just the sum of their parts, which can be in a good way. You look at quickly, he's still intriguing. What is top in it? Does he space the floor, give you a lot of ball skills, um, cook defenders off the dribble? Does he become close to a league average defender? I might wage against that happening. You, you have RJ Barrett to go with those two. So between RJ Barrett quickly top in, like, do they amount to like high end, multiple high end cornerstones together? Maybe I, we're going to have to see, but the Knicks might be done getting high draft picks. It's they're firmly in the middle of the Eastern conference right now. And it looks like they're going to be entrenched in that playoff picture. Not just, you know, they have a very tough schedule to close out the season. Not much of a cushion. They're in the play in uh, territory right now. Maybe that's where they finish. They their future is it's still pretty iffy, and I think this season has to be a resounding success for them playing with a rhyme and reason for how good their defense has been. Still, still top three. There is a method to who they're letting take three pointers for the most part. You look at improvement from Randall, from Barrett, Mitchell Robinson before his injury was fouling less and less, and he's still healthy. Uh, he's still forced when healthy, and you could loop him into that. You know, quickly Robinson, R.J. Barrett, Obi Toppin. Maybe none of them are going to be developed into a top twenty-five NBA player and be that type of cornerstone, but what does that together get you? Because you can still be a really good team without that player. I think you would just, until you have that at least top 25 guy, and then you really, if you're only going to have one of them, you need to surround them with a hell of a lot of depth. You're probably going to fall outside that championship discussion. I think that's a good spot to end. Uh, apologies to anyone's questions we did not get to. Thank you to everyone who hit us with questions on Twitter. Thank you for everyone who continues to slide in the DMs with questions. Those are great. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, even if you don't use iTunes. That helps us out a bunch. Also, just download every episode and subscribe if you're listening to this podcast, wherever you do get your podcast. And remember to come join us on Locker Room at 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. We try and have a lot of fun, and hopefully you enjoy it as well. But until next time, I'll leave you to shout out to, since we just talked about him, the one, the only, Frank Nielakina. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.